Hello and welcome to The Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. On this week's episode, we're taking a look at a new exhibition exploring how extraordinary burials across southeastern Europe marked out important individuals from the Neolithic to the Bronze Age. The first Kings of Europe exhibition, which is currently running at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, gathers hundreds of objects from 11 European countries. Through these objects, the exhibition seeks to explore the importance of technology, trade, rituals and warfare in the evolution of social inequality in the Balkans and beyond. The exhibition is the subject of the cover feature of the latest issue of Minerva magazine, which is out now in the UK and next month in the United States. It's also available to read in full on the past website. Speaking to me on today's episode are Attila Jaicha and William Parkinson, two of the curators of the exhibition, who share with me their thoughts on putting it together and some of the many artefacts on display. Here's my conversation with them. Okay, thank you both, Tilla and William. Um, so the exhibition, The First Kings of Europe, is a collaboration between, I think it's 26 museums in 11 different European countries. I mean, that's quite an extraordinary achievement. What's it been like sort of bringing the exhibition together? Well, it's been like eight years is what it's been like, right? Um, uh, we started on this in, in 2015, and it was a long, not very straight, somewhat bumpy road at times. Uh, you know, like most good things, it started with a, a good, if not crazy idea. And then uh, we just figured out how to sort of fill in the gaps. And, uh, you know, after a global pandemic and... <clears throat> You know, a whole bunch of other things. Uh, we finally pulled it off and it opened in uh, March here at the Field Museum in Chicago. Excellent stuff. And Nutella, how was it for you? Well, you know, it was definitely fun and joy. And, you know, it resulted in a lot of gray hair and new wrinkles. <laughs> uh, so it's that kind of project. So what we are talking about, 11 countries, basically Balkans, uh, including 11 countries from basically uh, today Slovakia to Greece. So... As Bill mentioned, it's multiple years, and uh, during these years, we had to cope with a lot of obstacles. We are dealing with 11 countries, we are dealing with uh, bureaucratic issues in these 11 countries, but, you know, it was joy, it was fun, because it was real collaboration with all these 26 museums, all these colleagues, all these fantastic institutions. So, all in all, yeah, we have new wrinkles, definitely like more gray hair, but it was definitely worth it. <laughs> Um, so the exhibition features um, artifacts over four periods. Um, I'll, I'm going to run through them all. Uh, it's the Neolithic Age, the Copper Age, the Bronze Age, and then the Iron Age, finally. And I hope that I've, I've got that in the right order. And so many are pictured. Many of these objects are pictured in the in the article in Minerva magazine, which I've actually got here. Um, and on the cover, um, we've got some of the sort of ceramic figurines dating from the Neolithic times. Can you tell me a bit about these figurines and what they represent? So. Uh, these figurines are from Poduri in Romania, and they are about like uh, good, like let me do the math again. It's like seven thousand years old assemblage. What we are talking about, and this assemblage contains twenty-one figurines, beautiful figurines, painted figurines with different decorations, different size, and also thirteen chairs. It's a kind of unique assemblage. We have some similar ones, but you know this is the most complete assemblage of this kind throughout southeastern Europe and uh, actually was found in a vessel uh, in a building that is interpreted as a sanctuary but you know when we interpret something as a sanctuary it's all, always a slippery slope so when it comes to interpretation 
what this assemblage represents, that's pretty unclear. Uh, actually, scholars usually say that they could be uh, con a council of gods, a council of goddesses. So it's kind of like a pantheon. So it's all about supernatural. The other end is like, that's not true. We are not talking about supernatural forces. And, you know, this assemblage would not represent that. It would represent rather a community, a village community. Uh, so that's these are the two ends of interpretations, and it's really hard to actually find the right solution, even if in the context is known, uh, again, a vessel in a possible sanctuary. Still, you know, this is our life, the life of archaeologists. To understand the past is essential when it comes to uh, ritual communal uh, functions and ritual communal assemblages like this from Poduri. Yeah, and it kind of it kind of doesn't matter what it meant to the folks who created those figurines. I mean, you know, whether it's a pantheon of goddesses or whether it's a you know a matrilineal council that represents the community. Because for us, for our purposes in the exhibition, you know, what we're doing here is we're telling the story of how you went from small farming villages in the Neolithic period to what are the first tribal kingdoms in Europe in the Iron Age. That's the long arc, right? And for us, um, we're using it to sort of set the stage. Like, and so what we're trying to do with this collection of figurines is set the stage that what about what the Neolithic was like, right? We have communities, we have people who are farming, we have people that are, are wrestling with relationships in these villages between, and it's great for us to sort of set that stage. And so it's one of the first things that you see when you enter the show. Um, I'm skipping on to, I know we're skipping through huge periods of time here like crazy, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, Copper Age, a period of very great revolutionary change uh, for societies, and particularly so following the sort of development of smelting. Um, but this period also saw changes in terms of funerary rituals. It's very difficult to say that, but would that be true? Funerary rituals. Funerary rituals, not a, there not we are. An easy, not an easy term, I agree, Colin. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. So what happened when it comes to cemeteries, this is the first period, and we love this period. We focus on this period for like nearly 25 years here in Hungary and Bale. So what in this period, period makes like kind of like a unique, what what this why this period is unique, because actually you would see the first so-called formal cemeteries throughout Southeastern Europe. What is formal cemeteries? You know, it's very professional, right? Formal cemeteries are actually graveyards that are spatially separated from settlements. So beforehand, during the Neolithic, you would find all these uh, burials, graves within the settlements, near the houses, in the houses. Of course, it varied, uh, but by the Copper Age, you would find these smaller and larger cemeteries separated from actual life. So people created another arena outside their settlements, and they buried their dead there. Why is it important? Because actually, during this period, you would find also large cemeteries, as opposed to smaller groups of people buried near the houses, with their relatives, you would find larger cemeteries. And these cemeteries were used likely by different smaller communities in a micro-regional region. So with that, they created kind of like social arena 
for competition between these smaller and larger communities in the social landscape. So that was a major change. And, you know, there are cemeteries like Varna in, in Bulgaria or Tisapolgar, Vashatanya in Hungary, but and I could, of course, list other cemeteries too, where you would find actual status difference first time, for the first time. Based on grave goods, you would find people with higher status, elevated status, and people with lower status, groups with higher status, and groups with lower status. So that's that's a huge change compared to the Neolithic. When we would see more or less egalitarian communities, of course, there was competition between who had, for example, the coolest ancestor, right? Very likely, like plants might have might have competed. But by this time, it's not about that. It's really about wealth and status differences between actual groups. Yeah, and, you know, like Archaeology 101 is, um, you know, you don't, you don't bury yourself, right? You don't, no matter how much you want to take it with you, it's actually not up to you whether you take it with you. And so one way or another, a burial ritual is a performance. And that performance is saying just as much about the person that you're burying as it is about the people who are doing the burying, right? And so if you're, you know, if you're planting Uncle Bob under the house, the, the audience for that performance is the folks that already know you, right? It's your local neighbors. When you go to these regional cemeteries, now that performance becomes a regional performance. And so now I'm showing off not just to my neighbors who already know I'm a jerk, right? <laughs> but I'm performing in front of entire regions or communities uh, at the regional scale that really takes things to another level. And, you know, it's kind of what we're trying to do in this exhibition is put together those pieces that gradually come together to create what are these first early tribal kingdoms in the Iron Age. And this is a critical part of it. And then in the Bronze Age, um, moving further on, you get larger political systems again with quite hierarchical leaders um, and these become established and then become quite commonplace. But yeah, I imagine this also leads to sort of conflict between these different uh, groups and sort of societies. Um, and we see a big rise in sort of the development of weaponry in this period. And you've got a number of them on display in the exhibition as well. Um, can you tell me a bit more about some of these? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the one of the things that completely underlies all of this is bronze itself, right? Because, uh, you know, we talked in the in the Copper Age about the evolution of copper smelting, which is, you know, what is actually kind of a magical ability to extract metal from rock, right? Um, and it's a, it's a bit of a game changer. But the problem with copper is that copper's soft, um, you know. And so throughout the Copper Age, most of these big copper tools are probably more for status and display than they are for actual getting business done. Right. And so in order to make copper hard, you need to alloy it. And what they figure out relatively quickly, about 5000 years ago, is that the best alloy for making copper hard and creating bronze is tin. The problem with tin is that unlike copper, which is available all throughout the Balkans, there's there are copper mines um, that are exploited back 7000 years ago in places like Bulgaria and Serbia, um, tin is very rare geologically. And so to get tin, you're either looking at Afghanistan on the one hand, or you're looking at Cornwall 
on the other hand. And so by the time we get to the Bronze Age, 5,000 years ago, we're literally looking at intercontinental trade, right? And that's sort of what's what's making the whole world go around is the trade in those metals. And, and that's critical to the creation of, of these weapons. Attila, you want to talk about the, the weapons a bit? Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to bronze and when it comes to bronze production, it's, you know, when it comes to bronze production, distribution of bronze goods, being tools or being weapons, it's all about control, right? This is exactly the period where we would see the first, the emergence of the first chiefs controlling lands, but also controlling the production and distribution of these goods. And when it comes to production, it also actually uh, comes to weapons. And that was your question, Kevin, about, about the weapons. That's the period where we would see first time the production of weapons at large scale. And not just weapons at large scale, but, you know, we also would see uh, some of the first kinds of weapons what we know today. For example, first swords. Swords were produced during this period. And then we also would see other offensive weapons, such as spearheads. We have daggers. And these are all new types of weapons. And these new weapons were all about power, all about the social power of chiefs. And with chiefs and with weapons, with, with social power, you would see the first revenues, uh, revenues uh, emerging around these chiefs. And we would see the first larger scale combats. We're not talking about thousands of people, but we are talking about dozens of people, probably hundreds of people in combat together. Uh, and these are the offensive weapons. Then we have, of course, defensive weapons. Again, absolute new types. We, are, we have beautiful new bronze helmets, fantastic pieces, shields, greaves. And they are, they are the practical weapons, right? And these practical weapons many times are buried uh, in the ground as hordes. Uh, so we know those from different kinds of hordes, uh, buried during different ceremonies. We also know these kind of weapons from burials. Uh, and these are practical. Then, you know, we also have these ceremonial ones that you also asked about, Kevin. And these symbolic ceremonial weapons were, of course, uh, non-applicable for, for warfare. We are talking about silver and gold weapons. They are not the materials that you usually use to create weapons because they are just too soft. So in the exhibition, for example, we have this beautiful greave from Hungary. And this greave is an absolutely unique artifact. It's, it's a grieve that no one has ever found any kind of similar uh, artifact throughout Europe. And with the motifs that may, that probably came from, from Greece. And of course, you know, this particular grieve also, for example, gold halberds from Romania. These were used during large-scale inclusive ceremonies. It was all about showing off. It was all about showing that I'm the chief. Uh, I can actually afford to have these weapon-like things made on actual gold and actual silver. That's that's a huge change in human history. Yeah, the other you know the other big game changer that happens during the Bronze Age is uh, horses, mm -hmm. and so by the Bronze Age, um, all throughout this part of Europe now. Horses are pretty widely spread, and they're a big game changer if you're looking at 
um, things like power, the ability to move goods, the ability to transport goods, uh, especially when you combine it with things like the wheel and wheel transport, right? And so all of these different pieces are coming together to create this world in the Iron Age where you get the the blossoming of these of these uh, kingdoms. Bronze Age, Bill. Bronze Age. No, in the Iron Age is when you see the blossoming of the kingdoms, buddy. Oh. <laughs> I'm not getting involved. <laughs> You're the experts. Um, but it does lead us very, very nicely onto the Iron Age, which is the final of the, the four ages. And the article, something that was interesting in the article to read about was the sort of significant role of women during that period. Um, what does the evidence, and particularly within, I mean, the evidence within the archaeological record for the role of women, what is this, what does this evidence consist of? Well, you know, uh, even in the Neolithic, we would, we would see some uh, female burials referring to the elevated status some, of some women. You know, for example, we have this beautiful uh, burial from Hungary uh, displayed in our exhibition with fantastic exotic traded goods that you know we would never find in the same uh, at the same site with mills. So, but that's kind of like the beginning. By the Iron Age, actually, uh, especially when it comes to the Central Balkans, we are talking about the seventh to fifth century BC. There is a specific area, so-called Glacinus Plateau, it's current Bosnia and Herzegovina, south, southern Croatia, where we would find female burials that were much richer in terms of grave goods than the male burials, definitely referring to the high social status of women uh, in these specific societies. So, for example, in our exhibition, we have an in-situ burial from one of these cemeteries from Donja Dolina in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, with a, a, a 12-year-old, about 12, 14-year-old uh, uh, woman uh, with actual beautiful bronze jewelry, bronze tools. Uh, in, the, in the male graves, you wouldn't find these kind of things. It's just not these artifacts wouldn't, wouldn't occur in, in, in male graves in this specific cemetery. Or we also can mention another assemblage from the exhibition from Serbia, from Novi Pazar, uh, from southern Serbia, with fantastic gold uh, ornaments uh, and, and other different kind of, uh, uh, of artifacts, definitely belonging to a female grave again. Or just one, another example is uh, in Croatia, in the so-called Yapoda group uh, uh, assemblages, we would find uh, fantastic amber uh, jewelry. Uh, in burial. So these are all referring to the high social status of females uh, in these irony societies in many different parts of the Balkans. Yeah, and what's what's telling about them is that, um, you know, by this time, by the Iron Age, we're looking at social classes. It's very clear that we're dealing with stratified social systems where there are people who are just born into these different classes. And that's something, I and mean, this is why the burials in the exhibition are actually important because you can sort of see this evolve from the Neolithic where there's some variability and, you know, women of a certain age tend to be buried with this stuff and men of a certain age tend to be buried with that stuff 
to, you know, the throughout the Bronze Age, where much of it looks like it's based on personal achievement through one's life. By the Iron Age, there's absolutely no question that people are just born. You're born to be a commoner or you're born to be an aristocrat, right? And it's crystal clear when you see these 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 entire burial grounds that are only for the elite. Yeah. All very timely stuff in this um, coronation <laughs> aftermath. Absolutely. <laughs> born to, born to, be, a, born to be a commoner and born to be an elite. Yes, I'm Just sure. Say, you know, that didn't happen overnight. No, right? no. It, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point of the show, right? I mean, this is why the very first thing you see when you enter the show is a what we believe is the last commissioned crown for a European monarch. It's the crown of, of Queen Maria of Romania. And it was commissioned 100 years ago, 1922. And we really want to hit home the point that this is a story that has very deep roots. This very unequal world that we live in, this world of haves and have-nots, of kings and commoners, that, that's not something that happened overnight. That That's where this story began, was back in the beginnings in the Neolithic and throughout the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age. Um, slightly obvious question, but what are you hoping visitors will take away from the exhibition uh, once they've seen it? Particularly uh, visitors who might have sort of um, family connections to the to the region. It's it's not that obvious question actually. Yep, it's not that obvious question actually. There are different levels. Uh, uh, I thought about this question a lot, and you know there are different levels. Like let's just say that someone is is curious about you know history and wants to see beautiful artifacts. Here you are. You have that beautiful history with fantastic uh, artifacts. Secondly, you know, do you want to learn about the development of social inequality and differences that we see actually in our own society? You you want to be educated a little bit more about it? Here it is again. That's like a, a, another level. Then, you know, of course, there's the third level that you mentioned. Of course, uh, in Chicago, then in New York, and uh, the exhibition will be also displayed uh, in Canada, uh, in Ottawa. So there are a lot of people living in these cities from southeastern Europe. For these people, it might be a very important thing to learn about their past. Uh, that's a very important thing in order to reinforce their identity, for example. Also, it's really important to learn about the common past of this region, the common past of the Balkans and the surrounding region. It's a region with a lot of conflicts. We all know that, right? It's very fragmented. But, you know, with this exhibition, we can tell a story which is about commonalities, which is about a past that we all shared in this region. So in terms of identity and in terms of this message that I mentioned, this is a very important exhibition. We really, truly believe in it. Then, of course, there is a fourth level, which is we are probably most proud of. And this is the international collaboration between all these 11 countries throughout the Balkans and beyond. Again, you know, this is a conflict region, region, region for centuries. And this exhibition really represents the close collaboration between these countries, these actual today countries. And we believe if this is possible, if we can put together, together with, of course, our colleagues uh, throughout the region, if we can put together an exhibition like this, 
similar extensive collaborations uh, are also possible in other fields of light too. Instead of focusing on problems created by politics, of course, we can actually work together on really good, very important projects. Uh, so there are these different levels. That's, you know, uh, <laughs> what it means to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, for Attila and I, this is very personal. We've been working together as collaborators for 25 years uh, doing archaeology in Hungary and, and in Greece. And, um, you know, this is what our work is about. Our wheelhouse as archaeologists is to tell that story of how small farming villages got big and complicated and created the world that we live in today. So for us, I think, you know, this is, this is literally what we do, right? And so here's an opportunity to tell it, you know, but the, another thing that happened while we were developing this exhibition was in 2018, Oxfam reported that eight individual humans own half of all of the wealth in the world. Eight, eight people take all of the wealth in the world and give half of it to eight people. And this had a huge impact on, certainly on me as I was thinking about this exhibition that, you know, the world that we live in is pretty unequal and it's our job. It's our obligation as archeologists to try to communicate how we got here and maybe communicate that the world wasn't always this way. Um, and so I think I think that we do that really effectively in this in this exhibition. Um, you know, for me, that's what I want people after they're done. That's what I want people talking about when they go out for a beer hmm. is, uh, you know, oh, wow, I didn't realize the world wasn't always like this. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, I very much want to see it now, given your descriptions. It sounds fascinating, but uh, <laughs> I might have to do with the article in the meantime. But um, yes, thank you, William and Attila. Thanks very much oh. for talking to me and enduring all the technical issues as well. Sure. Come come to Chicago, bring some single mom. We'll give yeah. you a tour. It sounds, and I'll you, definitely Charlie. have a beer afterwards as well to discuss how we, how <laughs> we turn the clock back to slightly more equal times, I think. Does that sound good? good that was perfect, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> that was Attila Jaicha and William Parkinson talking to me there. Don't forget that you can read the full article on the First Kings of Europe exhibition in the latest issue of Minerva magazine, which is out now and is also accessible in full on the past website via the link in the description. And in the description, you'll also find some more information about the exhibition. It's running at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago until January next year, and will then be at the Canadian Museum of History in Quebec until 2025. Plenty of time to see it, in other words, if you're in that part of the world. That's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening.